Good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. Welcome back to our mini-series on the prophet Daniel. Now we are going to be turning to Daniel chapter 9, if you got a Bible handy. And just real quick, let's do a little bit of an overview now that we're uh, kicking up this series again. And let's look at what we've gone through thus far. The first few chapters of Daniel cover his life what happened, his dealings with King Nebuchadnezzar as well as King Cyrus, and what happened to his friends uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And at some point in the book, we see with uh, chapter 7 here, Daniel takes a turn. He takes a change here for a, a different genre. You see, the book of Daniel is, if you look at the genre of it, it is prophecy. But the first few chapters are more like autobiographical history. He's talking about his life and the life of his friends. But at chapter 7, it starts to go more into the hard prophecy, the real meat, the meat and bones of this book. But now as we get to chapter 9... He does say something that is quite interesting before getting to uh, getting back to prophecy. We see something that is very important to his devotional life. So let's take a look here at chapter 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen to that. So Daniel here, it says he's basically meditating on Jeremiah's writing. Now Jeremiah and Daniel were contemporaries for a time, Jeremiah being the prophet in Jerusalem when the exile happens, when the Babylonians come in and sack the place and take thousands and thousands of people captive. Daniel is reading this scroll, which apparently by this time is now just flat out. It's out for people to read and to look over. And as Daniel does this, um, now It's from Jeremiah chapter 25, I believe, verses 11 and 12, that we see this um, 70 years that Jeremiah brings up, that for 70 years there would be this exile from the land. And it is at that point, realizing that this 70 years is almost up, that Daniel decides to pray. Now, a little bit of uh, history here. It is six. 606 BC, approximately, between 610 and 606 uh, BC, Nebuchadnezzar starts the exile, right? There's the actual hard exile beginning during that time. And it is after that, that you have about a, a clock, a countdown of 70 years. It wasn't an exile that was all at once, you see, because the final exile occurred in 586 BC with Jerusalem finally being burned to the ground and the temple being destroyed. It's at about 539 BC or 70 years after the initial exile at 610 BC that you have and see the people beginning to move back to Jerusalem under King Cyrus the Great's, um, you know, the Cyrus Cylinder. That is finally permitted. We're close. Daniel's close to that time now because Darius the Mede is now in charge of Babylon. He's in charge of the land of the Chaldeans. And wouldn't you know it, his prayer is not, Okay, God, 
You made a promise for 70 years and time is almost up. I want to go home. It's not. Daniel looks at this and goes, Oh my goodness, everything that God said would happen came true. We really did sin. We really did do this. And he prays a prayer of collective apology, collective confession. If you ever wonder why we uh, confessional Lutherans will have confession and absolution for everybody all at once at the beginning of our church service, this is one of the reasons. This is Holy Scripture. This is a holy prophet apologizing to God on behalf of his people. And my question for us, and I know that this is a little bit more devotional than educational, but how often do you pray for all of your people? For your country, for your family, for everybody? Well, all the time we pray for things. We ask for, you know, God bless America. We ask for God to help our relatives to come to the light of the truth. How often do we apologize on their behalf? Say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, we have done wrong. And Daniel even points to, uh, to Moses here in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, where Moses says, all right, here's, what you, here's the good you get if you obey the law in chapter 28. Here's the bad you get if you disobey the law and abandon the Lord your God. Mm, and by the way, you're, you're actually going to do that. And yes, you will actually be taken into exile as the final punishment for transgressing God's covenant. Daniel points to that. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. And Daniel's saying, okay, well, I'm doing that now. <laughs> Everything the prophet said came true. Everything Moses said almost a thousand years before Daniel was living, that all came true. God forgive us. Please have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on me and my people. This is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, and we should do it more often. But, that being said, he does entreat the Lord's favor, and he says, Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He makes a request. A request in line with God's word, saying, okay, this is what you said you were going to do, and I pray, O oh Lord, now that you will fulfill it, and that I will see it. How do you suppose uh, God answers? Well, when we take a look here, starting at the 20th verse, we will see that God sends someone to answer. And he's a familiar face for those of us who have read the Gospels. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the, the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. 
Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, before we get into this, this is the same Gabriel that announces the incarnation to Mary. This is the same Gabriel that says, you know, Hail Mary, full of grace. You know, blessed art thou among women kind of a thing. He is a messenger angel. Which is kind of redundant. The word angelos in Greek, or uh, I believe it's malach in Hebrew, both of those are essentially terms for messenger. A messenger from the Lord. And since that's the predominant term that we hear for... uh, for this species of being that isn't human but isn't a, an animal, we uh, <laughs> we call them angels. But Gabriel shows up, and Gabriel gives him a message and a prophecy for him to understand what's going to be happening. So let's go ahead and read uh, one of the most confusing passages in all of the Bible and try to make sense of it. This is where the angel Gabriel gives us a very specific pronouncement. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word uh, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And uh, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That prophecy has been used to insane ends. People are never as careful with it as they ought to be. Uh, first, we're going to first stay as careful as we can here. Have you ever heard of the Millerites, the Great Disappointment of 1844? Well, the Adventist movement claimed that from this prophecy and from certain calculations, they could find out the day that Christ would return. Oh, yes, indeed. And The Adventist movement based so much hope on this 70 weeks prophecy, uh, oftentimes in ignorance, we we can't blame them too much, but there was a almost downright craziness to it. And we must avoid that. If we are to uh, avoid disobeying Christ's words, where Jesus says, no man knows the hour and the date, not even the Son of Man. In in his human nature, that access uh, to the knowledge was not made available to our Lord Jesus. But everybody likes to set dates for everything. Especially for the return of Christ, without even realizing that this passage probably isn't about the second advent. Let's take a deeper look here. The closest time 
to this. The closest year that we have to what the prophet Daniel is saying is Cyrus's decree, the Cyrus Cylinder, the decree of return for all nations to go back home from the places where the Babylonians had exiled them. That's about 538 or 539 BC. Now, typically what we hear is 70 weeks, that's a week of years, because strictly speaking, what's said here is not 70 weeks, but 70 sevens, right? That's uh, for about 490 years. So we take out our handy dandy calculator here, and I, I should be able to just do this in my head, but for brevity's sake here, let's see here, 539 minus 490. That leads us to 49 BC. What on earth happens in 49 BC? Nothing. <laughs> Just about nothing. But we do see in uh, verse 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, that's the decree of Cyrus, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. Then, for the six, for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So, the angel Gabriel is saying that, wait a second, wait a second. There is a time period between 538 BC and 445 BC, when Nehemiah rebuilds the walls and everything of Jerusalem. Let's see here, that's one week. That's what he considers it. Now the weird thing about that, so again, taking out our handy dandy calculator here, we're seeing numbers being added up in a way that doesn't work for human reasoning here. 538 minus 445, that's 93 years. Well, does that even divide by seven? Nope. Why does Gabriel say it's one week? <laughs> it's not seven years, and it's 93 years apart, leading us to, uh, even if we divide it by seven, it's 13.2857143. In other words, totally meaningless. However, 445 BC, if, if Gabriel the angel is saying, uh, listen, there is seven weeks for that okay that counts as seven weeks period it doesn't matter whether it's uh whether it makes sense to us he says in this prophecy of 70 weeks the first seven weeks are 93 years okay i just accept that on faith but from 445 Let's, uh, let's see here, 62 weeks are left for 62 weeks that should be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So 62 times 7 here is 434. 445 minus 434 leads us to about 11, BC, uh, 11 AD. Sorry, 11 BC. But what most people will see, the traditional interpretation of this is all the way up to Christ's birth. So 0 BC. 
Because after all, it says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. So between the end of the 62 weeks, we have Jesus coming up, being raised, going about his ministry, and then dying for our sins. He is cut off from his people. He rises again, and then during this last week, we have the destruction of Jerusalem. More than once, by the way. Titus destroyed the temple in 70 AD, and then Hadrian conquered Jerusalem again in AD 135 uh, during what I believe is the Bar Kokhba revolt. And this is all confusing. I know I've just spent probably a few good minutes here trying to explain something that flies over our heads, especially given that Gabriel isn't using normal math here. These weeks are not directly correspondent to normal human time. He's saying they are symbolic for eras. So the first seven weeks is the uh, reconstruction of Jerusalem. Then there's 62 weeks between Nehemiah's finished work and then Christ's birth that counts as these troubled times as the people end up having to deal with uh, Greek domination. There's the Maccabean revolt, and there's, there's a bunch of internal court politics and troubles before, finally, the Romans take over. And, well, after the Romans take over, it's only a matter of time, matter of time before the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel is apparently putting that and superimposing that over this time period. Does it work out to 62 weeks of weeks of years? No, not at all. But that's not the point. He's, we should pay more attention to the events that he's describing rather than the exact timeline. This is where we have to be careful. Because if we let scripture interpret scripture, if we let God's word speak for itself, that which we can't know, it, it's fine to not know it. That what we can know is what we need to focus on. So while I can't break down the math of these weeks, we can look at the direct statements that are unmistakable. For instance, what's the whole point of these 70 weeks prophecy? It's right there in the 24th verse. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. What does that amount to? Gabriel is telling Daniel, Everything is going to be done. This big project here, and that your people, your capital, your holy city, everything you think you know about them, and that belonging is finished by the end of this. In other words, there is going to be atonement for sin. 
There's going to be an end to iniquity and righteousness for the people. Everlasting righteousness, meaning, well, the everlasting righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness that is imputed to us by his atoning death. But also, to seal both vision and profit, meaning, this prophet, this prophecy is finished up by that time, just about that time, once these 70 weeks are done. And you are going to have a point in time in which prophecies may come and go, but what matters is going to be done with the end of the, of the canon, the completion of the canon. And, yes, to anoint a most holy place. What holy place? Whose holy place? Well, let scripture interpret scripture. What does our Lord Jesus Christ say to the apostles in the Gospel of John? I go to prepare a place for you. Gabriel is giving him a place distinct from Jerusalem and from the Jerusalem temple. How, how on earth would Jesus be anointing a holy place if he's already in an anointed holy place in Jerusalem? Right, so we look at these direct statements here and we see that, yes, Gabriel wants us to focus on the actual gospel and what Jesus is doing. Now, it, is, it does mean an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, everlasting righteousness, the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. And then to seal vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place something different now, somewhere different, something given to us. And this is why in Hebrews, we, we talk about, in the book of Hebrews, a heavenly Jerusalem. The book of Revelation talks about a heavenly Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem that is different from this earthly one. And oh yes, it does have a lot to deal also with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem later on. But even if I can't find out the numbers, I can say that this prophecy of 70 weeks is fulfilled. That's where we, we differ from some of our dispensationalist friends who have an unfortunate and sometimes unhealthy fixation on this passage. They want Christ to come back. Everybody does, so I, I agree with them. Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. But, what is our job here? What are we looking forward to? Are we looking forward to the numbers and the math and the um, odd kind of conspiracy theory thinking where we're crunching up the newspaper trying to find exactly what's going on? Or are we trusting that, hey, Jesus says he's going to come back? And Jesus told, you know, God told Daniel through this angel Gabriel here's what's going to happen. Oh, well, my. If that's what's going to happen, then I'm just going to trust that God fulfilled that as he said he would, and then I will also trust that Christ will return when he will. He's made the promise, and God always keeps his promises. And so, it's pretty evident also that Gabriel says, after Jesus is crucified, after this anointed one dies for us, it's then that the earthly Jerusalem is destroyed. So here's Daniel praying in the beginning of this chapter for God's restoration of his people and the restoration of Jerusalem. And ironically enough, Gabriel says, yeah, that'll happen. 
Um, by the way, it's also going to be destroyed <laughs> once Messiah is killed there. Um, you know, of course, yes, Messiah rises again from the dead, but just, just letting you know, um, yeah, it's going to be blown up, torn to shreds. Okay, we good? <laughs> Poor Daniel. I gotta say, it must be awkward at times to be a prophet and to know these things, to know the encouragement and then the bad news right after the encouragement. And one more note on 70 and 7. And... 70 weeks kind of a thing. Daniel was just praying about the 70-year exile of the children of Judah to Babylon. And now Gabriel says, well, okay, you're looking at 70. I want you to look at 70 times 7. Now, if you look at Matthew 18, our Lord Jesus tells Peter when he says, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. I think the number here isn't quite as important as the fact that this 70 times seven idea is the broad scope, the broad scope of fulfillment. Jesus doesn't want you writing a list of how many times you've forgiven each person, and then once you get to 491, no more forgiveness for them, buster. No, he doesn't want that. He wants you to just forgive your brother. Forgive those who sin against you. Period. It's not about counting it. It's the broad scope of fulfillment of forgiveness itself. And Gabriel is doing something similar here. I mean, otherwise we know that the math doesn't work out if we try to apply it directly to a timeline. But I digress. Let's go ahead and move on to chapter 10. Which is also, again, this is what makes Daniel like Zechariah and the book of Revelation so hard is vague details that are concise but also just hard to get. So let's start reading here in Daniel chapter 10 starting in verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus king of Persia a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar and the word was true and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, and nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and behold, I looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, 
understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me concerning, according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Now here's where we get to some confusion. The description of this being that confronts Daniel or meets him by the roadside here after his period of mourning, what happens? Well, he just shows up, right, by the river. But what does he look like? A man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Now, does that sound familiar? Oh, yes, it does. Uh, Let's look at Revelation chapter 1. And I don't mean to confuse you here while you're turning there. I don't mean to confuse you, but this is really important to look at because some people, some of them, might make maybe a, a possibly wrong interpretation of this that we have to be careful about. So... Revelation chapter 1. What happens here, starting in verse 9? I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Theatera, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. 
On his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wait, wait, wait. Rewind there. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Wait, if I keep my finger here in Revelation 1, and then I turn back to Daniel chapter 10, what does it say? I lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Wait a minute. Is this the same person that Daniel seeing? Is John seeing the same one here in Revelation chapter 1? Maybe. You see, our friends that we might have in the Seventh-day Adventist church, they would disagree, but they would have a, a harder time trying to explain it. We'll get into that in a moment here. But this being that John sees is Jesus. Because he says in verse 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Oh, that's Jesus. This is Jesus, God in the flesh, being risen and glorified and in such fashion that being transfigured from the way he appeared during his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus looks downright terrifying to, the, to John, the revelator, the apostle. So here we see Daniel sees a figure that looks strikingly similar in description. Is this Jesus? Maybe. <laughs> it's, the, it's the best I can say here. Maybe. Because we look at this and we see these similarities, right? And we say, okay... Is this Jesus talking to Daniel to give him a great message of further understanding the future, this oracle that he has been desiring, that he has been mourning for? Well, if so, there's some difficulties for us to answer. For instance, in verse 13, this person, this being speaking with Daniel says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. What's the problem there? 
the Prince of Persia clearly is a spiritual being, probably a fallen angel or a powerful demon uh, contending for the Persian Empire here. And this prince is, well, contending, fighting, trying to delay and keep this being that Daniel is seeing in one place. Does that sound like how demons react to our Lord Jesus Christ? No. By the Gadarenes in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, the demons shout in terror at Christ because they know he has authority, and they ask, have you come to torment us before the final judgment? That's, uh, that's how all of the demons speak. They are terrified of Jesus. They submit to his authority. And nobody has power over our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the omnipotent God. Remember that. We do believe in the Trinity here. So is this a limitation on Christ's power? If indeed this is the same person that John sees in Revelation chapter 1. If it is our Lord Jesus that Daniel is seeing, then we have to understand that the prince of Persia, this demonic or evil figure here, uh, withstanding him, that's not a limitation on what Christ can do. There is some other reason that he is dealing with this, uh, this prince of Persia here, a withstanding that is not combat, but more so like a, a withstanding like perhaps an argument or a decree being made that is taking a long time to be said. And then finally Michael shows up and Christ tasks him Another problem, though. In verse uh, 15 here, it says, When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, my, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. One in the likeness of the children of man. That sounds quite a bit like the title Son of Man, which belongs to our Lord Jesus. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And Daniel refers to this one, to this person, as O oh my Lord, Adonai. That's a title for God. Sometimes it could be used as a title for respect, especially to royalty. You know, David had been called Elohim before, and others had been called Adonai, not calling them gods, but calling them very, very, very important person. Is that the same as this burnished, bronze-looking, flaming-torch-eyed, lightning-faced guy here in chapter 10? Is that the same one, or is that a different person coming and touching his lips? I don't know. It's vague. We have to be careful. As I say, whenever we get through to these prophecies and these visions of the prophets, if we are not careful, we can make some blunders here. Because the Seventh-day Adventists, part of the Adventist movement who came after the Great Disappointment of 1844, the, Ad the Seventh-day Adventists, they believe that Michael is the second person of the Trinity. The, the prince of Israel, or the prince of Judah here, 
They believe that Jesus, before incarnating as a human being, was Mar Michael the Archangel. Now, they believe that he is still God, so there is enough orthodoxy in Seventh-day Adventism to pass the smell test, I guess. But they believe just, yeah, before, before the incarnation, before Christmas, he was Michael. And then he received the name Jesus later on. Okay, okay. What's part of their reasoning here? Part of the reasoning is that, well, the man that Daniel set, sees here is not Jesus. Because after all, Michael comes to help him. And that means that Michael is superior to this being that Daniel is seeing. And if that's the case, oh boy, that must really be, that must mean that Michael's a really, really big deal. And after all, it says when Jesus comes back, it's with the shout of an archangel. So of course he must be Michael. The problem is, is that nowhere does the scripture positively identify Jesus Christ as Michael the Archangel, while also being God. It says that Jesus is divine, says that he's God, doesn't say that he's also an angel. It says that he's the angel of the Lord, or the, the messenger of the Lord, in places like Genesis, and in Joshua, and in Judges. But Michael is never called, you know capital T, THE Angel of the Lord. We can't say that this is Michael. We have to be careful. That's what I'm getting at here. I know it's all confusing here. But at the end of the day, this being, I want to say that, yeah, this is probably our Lord Jesus. It fits the description that John the Revelator gives, John the Apostle gives for our Lord Jesus in his post-resurrection glorified state. But, it's more, it's best to say that's likely the case rather than that is the case. Now something that is more easily understood is this matter of princes. Let's take another look here at verse 20 and 21. Do you know why I have come to you? Uh, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. There's a prince for these three countries, as we see. There's a prince for Persia, a prince for Greece, and a prince for Judah or Israel. What do we make of that? Well... There is a hierarchy of angels. We don't know much about them, but we know that there is a level of angel that you might call prince. Michael is called an archangel, Michael is a prince. Then, though, when we get to things like Persia, you get bad princes. Maybe these were angels that before the devil's rebellion against the Lord our God, these were angels in that hierarchy that held that position, but just switched sides. So they're in rebellion against the Lord God, and now they're trying to take control of entire nations. And so there's one for Persia and one for Greece. Now, it does say, though, the, the prince of Greece will come. And we know from just a couple chapters ago that, oh yeah, there is this, uh, the goat is the king of Greece, this ram versus this goat there's going to be this battle and war between persia and greece well many battles many wars between persia and greece until alexander the great comes 
But at the end of the day, what does that amount to? This messenger to Daniel. Again, my best guess, this is probably Jesus speaking to him, but maybe not. I, I give it a 70% chance here, given the vagueness of this uh, prophecy and the, the troubles with it. And by that I mean troubles of human understanding, not troubles with the text. But the big point here is that he says, Do you know why I have come to you? He doesn't answer. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. We're going to go back out to war. And when I, when I go out, when I leave, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you that what is inscribed in the book of truth there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So if we ask the question, well, is there a national angelic or demonic prince for every country? Maybe. But we know that only one of them is actually good, is actually on the side of the Lord our God. And that would be Michael. It also tells us that there is a book of truth that could be maybe the scriptures themselves because he says, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. I'm going to tell you what the scriptures mean here. Or there is another book that describes these things, some book of the wars of the Lord, as is mentioned by Moses. So we, it's a lot of fuzzy, foggy stuff, but we do get the impression from this passage that Michael's one of the good guys, and that's good to know. There is angelic protection for God's church. Not just a national angel. Oh no, Michael's still around. And the church being the true Israel means that Michael is kind of working to help and to try to rule over, in some sense, a lot of the church. Just as true for Daniel as it is today for us. And then we ask the question, does that mean there are national angels for other countries? At least for Persia and Greece at this time there was. And even if there's more, none of them are on God's side. Or none of them are doing what they ought to do. So there is this fight that will continue on. And that might explain some of the slowness of history. God, God operates on his own time. We understand this, and all these prophecies, and all the eschatology, everything we think about when we ask about, like, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? It's been 2,000 years. Or, why did it take so long between Moses giving some of the first prophecies about the Christ? Or even in the Garden of Eden, there is 4,000 years between Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden and the Proto-Evangelium, the, the Gospel statement in uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, 4,000 years from that point to when Christ was walking the earth and died for our sins. 4,000 year wait for the promised seed of the woman. But when we ask why it takes that long for us, we, we do remember St. Peter saying a thousand years is as a day to the Lord and a day as a thousand years. God operates on his own time. But we also see this kind of behind the scenes thing. God will occasionally pull back the curtain and show us these supernatural dealings going on, these odd conflicts between angels, where a prince of Greece, also an evil being, is still inspiring Greece to be at war with Persia. Oh, these devils are not in league with one another. 
Where's Satan in all this? What's he doing? Why are they resisting God's word? Well, does God simply not want to interfere with them, with their, with their free will, so to speak, as angels? And if that is the case, are these demonic entities then slowing down the passage of time? muddying up the waters, muddying up and gumming up the works and everything we would expect for a fast or slow prophecy. The 70 weeks, which amounts to more like five, 600 years, a lot of that sounds like it has to do with, yes, this is the timeline. By the way, a lot of this long time between Daniel's prophecy and the coming of the Messiah, a lot of that might have to do with what the demons are up to and angels having to, to battle them. It all, it can make our heads melt. So I'm going to end right there. We're, we're going to finish up Daniel here next week. The point is, though, yes, God is in control. But God is allowing these factors in history and these actors in history, factors and actors, to make things longer, more complex than we would like them. But that's okay. God makes a promise. He fulfills it. Remember, this is, it's December 10th, 2020 right now. It's almost Christmas. We remember that God kept his promise that he gave to Daniel about a coming Messiah. He's going to keep his promise about Jesus's return. And he kept all of his promises regarding all of these things. So even if it seems like it's taking forever, and it seems like there's these factors and actors, these princes and some angelic dude that maybe isn't angelic he could actually be just jesus christ himself the son of god we look at all this and we see everything kind of being much more complex than it looks that's fine let god take these things into consideration and we will be made patient for his return hopeful expectant ready but also patient Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and for your holy prophet Daniel. We pray, O oh God, that we will honor you with patience. And while we also we see these prophecies, 70 weeks, um, a, a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece, and we see all of these things, it can be, it can be in, intriguing. But we pray, O oh Lord, that our curiosity will be satisfied by what the scripture says not turning to any other source may we be satisfied with saying i don't know when the rubber meets the road and may we glorify you O lord in the hope and in the knowledge that you always keep your promises here and we pray also O lord for our countries for our tribes for all of our people asking for your forgiveness for them as well may we be inspired to also make confession for them and beg for your mercy, just as Daniel does as a great role model for us. We love you, O Lord, and we thank you very much for all of these things, and we pray that we will not be overcome by confusion in all of this, but rather with steadfast confidence and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. All right, everybody, tune in next week for the final episode of our little Daniel mini-series, and I love feedback. Please let me know here how you feel about it, what's going on, and as you read it, how's it working out for you? All right. Thank you very much, and God bless. Bye-bye.